0: You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. In 2011, Zaina Erhaim was doing a master's degree in journalism at one of London's universities, when her homeland erupted in protest against Bashar al-Assad's regime, she didn't think twice before catching a flight to go back home. Journalism was her calling. She participated in demonstrations and helped deliver aid to victims, but most importantly, she documented what was happening in Syria at the time. As the revolution turned into a bloody proxy war for multiple actors, Zeina remained there and continued her work. Despite the danger, she and other brave activists and journalists risk their lives to tell the world the truth about the war. I'm honored to have her as a guest on my podcast.. In March, we've reached a grim anniversary, ten years since the beginning of the Syrian Revolution that turned into one of the most devastating wars. I remember as a 16-year-old, I was just cheering for Syrian people and just consuming all the news, everything I could find online, and it seemed like such a hopeful moment, but then it became clear that Assad will stop at nothing in his desire to crush the uprising, and 10 years later, Syria is lying in ruins. It must have been a very tough month for you as a journalist and an activist, When you're contemplating this anniversary,
1: what are the thoughts running through your head? Well, as a journalist in specific, I think I've matured a lot in the last 10 years. Um, But certainly those hopes are completely gone. Um, I'm trying to look, to report, to write and analyze those things that were lost between these very hopeful, very dedicated revolutionaries on one side, um, those very one-sided propaganda and per regime and those neutral people who are in the middle. Um, For some years, me and many journalists who were biased towards human rights um, didn't pay lots of attention to the, what we used to call them, the gray uh, people. Those who are stuck in the middle, and I think since I witnessed the war myself, um, I started thinking about um, like the general public, those who are just aiming and wanting to live a boring life. They don't have ambition, but that doesn't mean that they deserve to be killed or uh, being neglected or their rights to be abused. Um, so I've been trying for the last couple of years um, to go against the current in terms of documenting my testimonies about what has happened, which doesn't go with the flow. It does say that some revolutionaries were pretty much bad and some clergy people didn't um, do as much as horrific things. Well, that certainly doesn't um, change the the main narrative. However, it just shows that there are plenty of narratives. Um, For some Westerns, that means, okay, yeah, so it is very complicated. We don't understand it, let it go because it's much more easier to think that everything in war is black and white. There is nothing black and white, like it's literally hundreds of shades of gray. Um, I think being a journalist gave me that uh, insight and ability to see things differently, and because I am seeing and doing things differently, I'm I'm getting a numerous amount of uh, bullying and attacks, because I don't fit with anyone's agenda anymore.
0: And your personal story is just fascinating as well. When the revolution began, uh, you left uh, the comfort of London academia life to go back and report on what was happening in your homeland. You actually had a prestigious scholarship and you you studied uh, journalism. Um, you did a master's degree in journalism. And not only did you have to face the obvious dangers of reporting Um, during the war, during the revolution. But you also had to work in an environment that was quite hostile to women journalists. And you were really a pioneer by so many standards. There is a quote by you that I, I love. First level of class is the international male reporter. Next is the local male reporter. Third is the international woman reporter. And at the bottom is the local woman reporter and that really says a lot about what you had to go through but my question is why do you think it's so valuable that women journalists tell their own stories well first
1: because if they don't no one would <laughs> this is uh, this is the first thing and secondly i think the perspective of women like all the pictures even in international media we are being told about the things that are happening around us through male's uh, eyes through their own cameras through their own perspective and i especially women in our region um in conservative communities they do have a very much different perspective and um, they are facing lots of extra difficulties that the patriarchal society and those mainstream they don't understand it so they can't even report it like until now whenever a, a woman decide to take off her headscarf or put on a the headscarf, there is still, even on social media, there is still this huge wave of, uh, of like interference in her personal affairs. And they would say, yeah, we're just saying our opinion. This is a freedom of, of expression. So, I mean, this very basic right of just deciding who you are and what you do is not understood even among those who claim to be uh, advocating for human rights and for, um, like, freedoms which include certainly personal freedom i'm giving this example to tell you like how far we are from being able to tell the same stories in the same perspective Mm. women especially those locals because they have to face their own traditions their own community the sexism and in many cases misogyny Um, and above that prove themselves and this is very difficult and then in the third stage to just say what they want and if what they are doing is against the current, the kind of attacks that they will get is far more different. It's it's lethal. It will target them in their, who they are. Unlike men um, who write stories and they will be discussed or like criticized for their ideas, women are criticized for who they are. She's going to be ashamed by her body, her look, her personal life, her pictures. So it's it's literally lethal. And that's why I think especially local women who are working in conflicts, they're literally putting their life on the front line every single day, although they're just reporting on social affairs or within their own communities. They don't have to be on front line to be targeted on a daily basis.
0: And you actually uh, made a film about this a few years ago. Could you tell me more about that film and who are your heroes,
1: heroines, I should say? Yeah, so since 2008, I would say, um, that was the year when I became feminist myself. Uh, being raised in conservative society, I did believe uh, in all these patriarchal doctrines. Um, I believe that I don't have the right to walk freely in the street because I am a woman. Um, I believe that I need a male garden to travel because I'm not adequate enough to do that on my own. Um, in 2008, I just had a couple of... Um, I think I had a training and then um, I did an internship in Germany and I started seeing things differently. And by then I started only writing, mainly writing, about things that are related to women when I was living in Damascus. Um, In 2009, I also established a campaign against the personal status law uh, on social media then, although social media was blocked in Syria. So I started my activism like 12 years ago so it's made very much sense and continuous of what I did when I went in, um, to, not, to northern Syria. And I've seen how those like, basic women's rights even became harsher to obtain because um, now traditions are armed. Now a uh, patriarchal community is literally holding arms. So before you were not allowed to go in the street on your own. Now you're forbidden by force. Uh, not to go to the streets um, on your own. So it, it made pretty much logical for me um, because I, I had this privileged access to the women because I am among them, um, to document the extra difficulties that activists, women activists are facing um, in those livelihood areas. And yeah, sadly that was pretty unique because everyone, all the male uh, and, and some even women journalists were just documenting the war, the victims, uh, but there is different layer of things that are being faced by specifically women. And I'm speaking about women activists. Local women who are not activists face even more repressions. Uh, it's, it's like a, a very scary hierarchy. But even those very powerful, uh, very um, cloud women who are activists, um, who, are, who went, some of them even went on frontline to give first aid. Um, one of them, Ahad, she's a, still a close friend of mine. Um, she was protesting in front of ISIS, demanding the release of her kidnapped friends. She protested against the regime. Um, She was a team leader of a whole men team. And despite despite that, she was being lashed and attacked every single day because she's not wearing the same dress code requested, although she was wearing a headscarf, but they didn't like the colour of her coat. So imagine the kind of details that were interfering that. So for me... Those are the stories that represent who I am. And I was, I was as they are. I was facing all of these restrictions myself. Um, and those are the stories I, I wanted to highlight uh, because this narrative of um, all firefighters, uh, all um, freedom fighters are actually fighting for all freedoms. Um, again, it's shallow and this two dimensional world it doesn't exist. And I believe women's perspective for me is the most important one. And this is why I try to... To highlight it, um, this is why I actually stayed um, in, in Syria for. Um, I wanted to tell those stories that I know if I don't um, know it, with
0: And you also trained women journalists. I find it interesting how, on one hand, war intensifies, like intensifies certain gender divides. Um, you know, that there are men who are fighting and women who are at home, for instance. But on the other hand, it subverts them as well Um, because you trained women journalists and some of them were housewives, others didn't have degrees. Do you think they were just kind of past caring about what men will think about them and their choice of profession?
1: Well, yeah, certainly. Um, Especially in the first training I did, which was an outlet, Um, And I invited um, those women who are interested in learning about journalism. Many came because uh, they heard other males speaking about it. And they were like, we just want to discover what is this major thing that's happening around us. Um, But um, I think they were not even taken seriously by their partners. When they told them, we're going to this women's center to do uh, media training, their partners just didn't take them seriously. And okay, do a knitting one as well after you finish. Um, and then, when they started writing, and in particular, one of them who, is a, who's, who's, who became a journalist and she is still writing for lots of um, Arapan outlets. Um, when she started writing, he started to get bothered because she needed to speak with men via Skype to interview them because they're not allowed to meet in person. And then, when she started gaining money out of her writing, that's when the shift happened. And uh, she started gaining far more than her husband, who's getting his salary in local currency while she's getting it in dollar. And then the next trip I did when I met Hadia, uh, obviously he was turned into a fixer. So whenever she wants to interview a man, he would go and hand her questions to him, get her the answers. Um, so I think the financial part, especially in the despair situation in northern Syria, uh, played the role. Um, and some men took advantage and luckily <laughs> for the women's uh, benefits and they changed their minds and, and not to mention yani, I think the perspective in general um, has changed. Um, so now although women are still being attacked a lot uh, more than, than men if they're media activists, but they exist. Um, when I first went in, And i would tell them i'm a journalist they would think so you're a foreigner and i was like no i'm actually from here i'm from the north because they couldn't believe that there is a woman and journalist and local at the same time so at least this uh like stereotype has been broken now and they do know that there are many uh women journalists who are working in all areas of syria
0: and what i found really interesting as well you wrote this very powerful piece about your hometown Idlib and how, when you first moved to Damascus uh, to do your degree, not many people even knew where you were from when you kind of had that nickname that you're from Idlib. And now, unfortunately, it's um, a place that many people are aware of because of all the horrible things that happened there. And I know about it, obviously, because of the um, Russian bombs that that were dropping on hospitals. Um, and that's, I think, where again I just experienced just so much rage um, at just that, you know boundaries are revo- irrelevant for certain dictators, especially when they um, when they
1: band together. Yeah, and sadly it was trending for other wrong reasons. Um, so Russian regime bombing um then uh, assassination of Babadzhi. Mm. And then, and Joe Lange deciding to rebranding himself. Um, they're all not from that province. <laughs> many of them are not even from Syria.
0: What I find so powerful over of, of the past 10 years, you know, if we can find something positive isn't in this horrendous conflict, is that so many ordinary Syrians became storytellers. They were recording their lives and the truth about what was happening in their home and posting it online, on YouTube, on Facebook. And we just have this huge database of all the atrocities committed against civilians. And, you know, one can hope that one day it will be used against the regime in the international criminal court. But what horrifies me is that there's also just such a sheer volume of disinformation and propaganda that are accompanies the Syrian conflict. And some of the propaganda is carried, carried out by the news channels, such as Russia Today, that, you know, it's quite an influential channel, unfortunately. And it finds its listeners on the West, you know, and you have these people in the West kind of applauding Assad for standing up uh, to American imperialism. I mean, as a Syrian journalist, it must be very frustrating for you to observe
1: this. Um, at some point, I, I literally stopped following uh, because I don't have energy to do this. But I know many of my foreign friends, and mainly those um, who speak English, they are dedicated to debunking all of this information. And I think some of the work that has been done um, by Bellingad, by some academics to, to debunk such... Um, and, and there is um, a new also podcast series um, on BBC that is trying to mainly debunk um, the Russian systematic uh, propaganda related uh, to Syria. Um, and what scares me more than um, mainstream media of Russia today is actually um, the influencers that are being brought by the regime, those who um, like are paid or given this award to go to Syria and found that there is nothing happening, Go you do your tourists, uh, you can come for tourism, Um, And this, you know, I'm not going to give them a free of charge advertisement, but this website Mm -hmm. has been done by uh, well-known propagandists who just try to attack anything uh, that's actually any facts um, or credits that are coming just from Syria, Syria 11, all the areas that are of interest um, of Iran and Russia. so there is um, many systematic campaigns of disinformation, but I also believe uh, there are many efforts on the other side trying to um, show what facts are and verify uh, those um, fake uh, interventions.
0: As a journalist, you try to put other people in the center of your story, and you have done so successfully. But I found your personal essays so impactful the one about idlib you know where you talk about your hometown and you really just build this image of a place that's imperfect and it has its own problems but problems but it it was home for you it still is and i when i have to think about the the trauma that you've been through watching your friends perish and and disappear and and your family displace i just um it's hard for me to imagine where do you continue to draw your strengths from. So I just have to ask you, how, how do you carry on? What gives you strengths?
1: Um, I think you, you already answered uh, this question. What gives me strengths is mainly the heroin women um, and the other women. Who are still working um, towards justice, social justice, um, equity on all levels. Um, I think I survived Aleppo mostly because I had those women who I filmed around me. They were my way out of uh, insanity, uh, which I didn't survive quietly, but yeah, to some extent. Um, and now. I think the cause of of equity, of being there, of um, just echoing the voices of um, those marginalized groups and uh, these violations committed, uh, not just against women, but also LGBTQ. Uh, This is the purpose. And I'm I'm really, I think I'm really glad because I'm I'm widening my, um, my networks and my work. I've been working on Iraq for the last two years and I'm working on Libya and Morocco which also have plenty of similar issues, especially related to gender based violations. So I'm still fighting for the same cause, but I'm just widening um, my borders and the feminist networks that I'm among some of them are a huge um, support and survival mechanism that would give you hope that you're not on your own. Um, Some people are still trying to make this work a little better a little bit better, um, despite the horrific things that uh, the main powerful um, politics um, are doing to it.
0: Right now, it seems that most of Europe is kind of dealing with the consequences of, of the of Syrian war and how, you know, it, it wasn't stopped on time. And, I've, you know, it's just so disappointing seeing the treatment of Syrian refugees all over the world, especially in Europe. Um, From what I know, you're based in Britain now, I'm based in Britain as well. And just watching this anti-immigrant, anti-refugee rhetoric is just something that shakes me to my core. How people talk about um, refugees as some kind of vermin, you know, as if they're some kind of illegal criminals and not the victims of regime trying to
1: (laughs) flee for some safety and not by their own choice. I think the media has played a role in this. Um, yeah. the stereotypes that have happened with the refugees, like in some areas when I introduced myself, and I put a refugee because this is my status and I was like, you don't look like a refugee Oh, that's,
0: and then, that's very familiar That's about Oh, your English is so good as well
1: <laughs> You know it's, so. it's worse, and I was like, what if I put some tears on my cheeks, would that make mm-hmm. me more like a refugee? And he's like, yeah, you don't wear a headscarf um, and you seem empowered <laughs> Wow So, uh yeah, that, that happens, but I think I'm also privileged uh, because I I have a job, because I live in London, I speak the language, so I can't compare myself literally to um, to other refugees who are facing more horrific things. And I need to mention what's happening in Denmark now, where 94 Syrians um, have uh, like their their residencies have been revoked, and now they're going to be deported back to Syria within a month. Among them like families, um, people, students who were finishing their high schools. uh, This is like the most horrific thing. Yesterday, um, a man, um, he's he's a father, actually, he died of a heart attack when he got um, this decision to revoke his residency and to go back because Denmark now thinks that Damascus is safe. However, their embassy is still like working from Lebanon instead of Syria, because it's not safe enough for Danish, but Mm -hmm. it's safe enough for Syrians. So I think this really scares me and I really hope I haven't seen lots of coverage about this uh, mm-hmm. neither in the British media or the English speaking one. Um, I really hope we will be able to at least keep telling people that Syrians who flee cannot really go back and the, although the act of war is off but um, detention centers are still on, the dictator is still in place, and even like uh, jihadists and chaos is still in the north, so no place in Syria is still safe to go back to. Um, And then at least after securing the the main safety and basic human rights, then we can speak about the discrimination and the stereotyping. But sadly, we're still in the very first stage.
0: And do you think that at this point, many Syrians just completely lost their faith in Western institutions such as the U.N.?
1: Yeah, if they're logical, they would. <laughs> I, I did very long time ago. Um, and I think the whole U.N. You know, Security Council, it's just been proven now that it's, it's not working. And the world needs um, a different system that could preserve basic human rights and, and take action to prevent such um, a humanitarian crisis.
0: No, I understand that because I think being from Chechnya and after surviving two wars and rising uh, and just watching dictatorship being established in Chechnya, at some point you just realize that the help is just not going to come from the outside. And of course, by help, I don't mean an illegal intervention. I I mean some kind of sanction regime that works or something like that. And I think what you said about that we need some kind of alternative structure, it's true, because I think there is just so much injustice happening in the world that I think what I find time and time again, that some kind of international solidarity across borders is something that, if doesn't help the situation, it definitely gives strength to people from all over the world. Yeah, I mean, the
1: only thing that I still believe in is people. Uh, but not their governments or authorities or these big establishments. But um, I do believe in in people and people um, that the support mechanism that they develop, uh, the solidarity campaigns that they do, um, it's not just uh, like a support, um, like a moral support, but in many cases, they can pressure for actions. I, I really only count on them. We'll try
0: our our best to come up with these structures and try to implement them and help each other out. And Zaina, it's truly such an honor and privilege to
1: speak to you. Thank you so I much for finding too. time. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: This podcast is just a tiny introduction to Zaina, but I hope it will encourage you to read more of her work. It's worth it. And make sure to follow Trouble with the Truth on any podcast platform of your choice. Thanks for listening.